but now. So uh, this is the session on the 31st of August and we're just talking about uh, the potential for chaos to emerge in world affairs that might impact on our lives. In the ancient texts of the yoga, of yoga specifically, there's a text called the Srimad Bhagavatam which was written about the end of the Mahabharata, let's say several thousand years ago. They talk about the epoch of man, of the of civilization going through stages, periods. And I think I've talked about this some other time. But there was an age, they say, mythologically, because it's so far beyond our present history that we don't, don't even have evidence of it. But there was this period of the golden age where everyone lived in happiness. Maybe you've heard about the myths of Atlantis and those other civilizations that occurred. See, humans in our present form, Homo sapiens sapiens, with the same intelligence as us, have probably been around for about 250,000 years. That's a long time. And yet our present recorded history only goes back 5,000 years at the most, you might say. Ancient Greeks were around two, two and a half thousand years ago. So, and writing only began, you know, around that time, maybe a little bit before with some of the pictograms and stuff. So we don't have, of the total record or period of time with people on Earth, that really what we've been in and what we regard as even ancient history is really only the very last, you know, 30 minutes of the 12-hour clock. Uh, the, the, the theory postulates that there were other periods prior to that where condition of humanity was much more uh, enlightened and that we descend, we go through these periods, cycles actually, where progressively the amount of light within humanity starts to diminish and you get forces of darkness coming in. I'm giving you a very, very rough and ready sort of overview of what this looks like. Anyway, the, the, they go on to say that in the current epoch, which is known as the Kali Yuga, the age of uh, Iron Age, I think it is, the age of Kali, who was the goddess of destruction. The things that we see that have become typical, and I'll read these because you might be able to relate. These are the characteristics of the age in which we live. Um, practically all desirable qualities will gradually diminish. For example, Dharma, that's the righteousness, uh, which indicates a respect for higher authority that leads one to obey higher principles will diminish. So you think that's true? Are we losing our respect for, for authority? No doubt. That um, truthfulness is diminishing simply because people do not know what the truth is. Now that's really interesting because of this era, era of fake news. Where you, if you lose the capacity to differentiate between truth and falsity, then you've got no moral compass. You've got nothing uh, to guide you to in the decision making that you need to make because truth as a, as a principle has become so degraded that it almost becomes meaningless. And Trump is a prime example of that, this whole idea of uh, 
ignoring evidence, saying that it's simply fake, and just sort of sweeping it away with a few words. And, and, and therefore, you end up with a culture where truth is, as a, a valued principle has become, you know, it's lost. And so what happens then, of course, is that uh, it says, um, without, without, with people losing access to the absolute truth and truth within themselves, one clearly cannot understand the real significance or purpose of life merely by amassing huge quantities of relative or hypothetical truths. So in other words, if you drown people in information, but they don't have the capacity to distinguish within that what is true, then effectively you've cast them back into ignorance. That in a way we're, li we're living in an age of ignorance. You imagine if, 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 if you can't believe anything on the internet, or if you can't tell, verify what's true from what isn't true, you may as well be ignorant. I think that's right, and, and one of the issues that I think about um, from time to time is that truth as a value, the intrinsic value of truth, is gone. Yeah. So you, to, for people to speak truthfully and to behave truthfully, you actually have to teach them now. Right, these are values. And they in used fact, to be intrinsic values. Yeah, and they came through the family, but they would also come through our role models. Yeah. And the political leadership would be one place that we would look. And in the past, in the times of ancient Greece, virtue was the, you know, virtue was the, was the highest good. And you would look to the figures of authority to model that virtue in the form of truthfulness and beauty and good deeds and and uh, moral behaviour. Now if you take that out of the equation then the people are left with no model and therefore you know everyone <coughs> it's a race to the bottom. Uh, another thing I don't have all the criteria here but we'll look it up another time but it says stuff like deceit and lies will form the basis of business success rather than ethics and good behaviour. So in other words, the economic model begins to reward lower values. And I certainly wouldn't be here saying that all successful business people have achieved their wealth by that means. But, and I know that um, I beat up on Facebook a lot, but just as an example, that the kind of lack of moral um, principle that we see through the leadership of these big organisations that control people's access to information is really disturbing that they can lie or be caught out to be lying the whole Cambridge Analytica thing is really an example of how in fact they have been hugely rewarded financially by creating and promulgating a whole network of falsity and, and I think this would be the ancient rishis, the sages that wrote these works, would be nodding in vigorous agreement with our observations here, saying this, this is exactly, these are the tendencies that we said would arise in this age. That, um, that uh, morals, morality, you know, that 
the whole institution of marriage is another one that, that, that the whole everything that gave rise to so much social stability and I'm not saying that there were not issues around say women's rights and things in the past that weren't that were that weren't serious issues but in terms of general stability the value of the family all the traditional things that had kept societies together are all under attack in this age and so again the rishis would say this is all typical of what we would have an would anticipate as we enter this age of darkness that con more conflict and more um, exploitation and uh, uh, um, loss of commitment to things which are noble and uplifting in favour of things that are ephemeral and designed for short-term gain. All of those things that we talk about. Is this cyclical? Yeah, it is. And so the, the sort of the good and the bad news is that it will come to an end. The good news is it will come to an end. But the bad news is that we might still have some way to go yet. And so this is why I thought it was an appropriate time to pause and just consider you know, if, thing, if the conflict does arise and if you start to feel around you that there is a growing sense of disease, then it becomes very important to return to the principles and practices um, of what we're engaged in here because I think there, that really is one way that you're going to be able to maintain your own groundedness and your own sense of perspective and therefore your own capacity to bring a little bit of comfort and reassurance and support for other people around you that may be feeling very vulnerable. So does that sound like something worthwhile to, to, to do? That you become each an ambassador of, um, for lack of a better word, light? Something that will give hope? So you have to become very strong do that you have to become very anchored in your practices you have to be able to readily access deep states of calm deep states of peace deep states of I think joy and contentment if you can continue to access those things even when things around you are not so good that is the sign of your own attainment and you have to start working on that now as they used to say, there's no point digging the well when the house is on fire. You've got to do the work. You've got to invest in your own resilience now before, if, if things were to get bad, you do it now, not then. And so, um, and if I'm wrong, and if this is all just an illusion, and if it's only, we're seeing it only because we're looking for it, what harm is there anyway in building a stronger, more resilient, more you know, accessible state of peace and happiness anyway. It's worthwhile doing for its own sake. I'm just saying that there may well be a time where we need to call on those attributes and skills that we've developed so that we can provide, uh, the, as I say, the comfort, the reassurance, the support, the strength. Even if it's only for the chaos within you. Well, of course. Now, and that's a very beautiful um, reminder that, you know, in the whole dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna in the Mahabharata, which is this, um, or the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of the Mahabharata, this, they're on the brink of this war. And Arjuna is the warrior prince. 
and Krishna is the supreme Godhead in the form of a, his charioteer that is his teacher but also his um, yeah, he's going to navigate him through the battle and this is all ever uh, only understood in its truest sense as a metaphor that the battle is life it's the obstacles that we face and the chaos is internal chaos yeah so the principles that you apply in to manage chaos in the external world are the very same principles that you apply to manage your internal chaos so that's essentially the teaching is that you have to firstly before you can survive any external chaos you have to be able to manage the internal chaos once you can conquer the internal chaos the external chaos is is equally managed right you can't have one without but you can't you don't start and, and I think the mistake that we make in life is that we perceive around us a whole lot of uncertainty and so we set about constructing a life where we're trying to manage all the external variables of our lives financial relationship um, health what other dimensions are there that could go wrong? I mean, you think of the things that you're trying to manage, right? Hold them all in place, create a buffer around you so that you are not exposed to the potential suffering that they would bring. And so we send, send, spend our whole life trying to engineer circumstances so that we are kept apart from the suffering that might occur if we were uh, not to make such provision but the thing is that you don't really have control over, over those things ultimately look at all the people that lost superannuation during the GFC that had diligently invested in super I mean we remember there was going to be an influx of retirees down here about 10-15 years ago that was the prediction was they were going to leave their jobs and retire down here and that all got delayed because a lot of people lost their super and they weren't able to proceed with their retirement plans. Is this true? They had to stay mm. and work longer and try some, and rebuild. Some of us had proceeded with our retirement plans right. and found ourselves having to go back to work or to <laughs> And so that that's just a clear example that you know that the promise of superannuation has been the ultimate nest egg that you can draw on that will keep you safe in your old age. Not even that, and the government can change the rules, which it's done so many times. Yep. And so you end up with a situation where the, the investments that you've made to try and control those external events is not secure. Correct. Health is another one. You know, how many people do you know that are really healthy and suddenly they'll get sick for no apparent reason? Complete left field thing. Good diet, they exercise and bang, something happens. So what I'm saying is, it's not that it's not prudent to do all those things, but you can't rely on them ultimately as being the, the guarantee against uh, a downturn or, or an unpredicted event that will bring suffering. So the, what the yogis would say is, by all means, do all those things, be part of the world, perform your duties, uh, make you know wise decisions but also you've got to do the inner work that is building the resilience and giving you the ultimate 
defense against suffering through understanding what's really going on here the real nature of the the game and so then that invites the question well what's the real nature of the game what are we really here for and of course the philosophers would say to know who we truly are to know us to know you know socrates know thyself now was what did socrates mean by that know thyself does it does he mean to know that you are a, a man or a woman that you are to, to understand your own skills and i mean is it at that level the very superficial level of who we are or is he talking about a deeper knowledge yeah ultimately it's the who am i at the at the purest sense what is the nature of self what is the nature of my being is the real inquiry and he says they all say that once you know once you can answer that question then everything starts to crystallize into a much clearer understanding of the nature of things and through that understanding you get the wisdom to help you navigate through life even when ups and downs occur you have the stability because you have the self-knowledge that it's going to carry you through that's the enterprise that's what we're on about so how do we know ourselves well we, you come here and you do your meditation and and you're uh, you're constantly trying to act in life with a with a, more than a superficial understanding of the nature of things and what do you find over time how do, how do you change how do I think when you talked about all of those pure qualities and in the beginning it's learning skills how to deal with how to find that but then when you do the practices over a period of time they are actually the product of the practices rather than employing skills. They are actually the result in a very natural way of the practices. They, they arise spontaneously. Right, so we'd be talking about, at the neurological level, we'd be talking about building a neurological resilience through the creation of new pathways that are more resistant to stress and to fear that's at the neurological the grossest level is the neurology and then there are more subtle levels that arise through and maybe arise as a product of the neurology i don't know but this enduring sense of calm that you start to develop where you become very emotionally stable very hard to you become like you know the ninja you know, have you ever done martial arts or any form where they teach you to find your center of gravity? I remember when I was 13, we went, I went to jujitsu. I learned jujitsu. <coughs> and, uh, <coughs> hey? I can't imagine you doing Yeah, my little white <laughs> thing, jujitsu pajamas <laughs> that you wear. It's taught by a guy called Jan de Jong, who was a commando in the war. For a Dutch guy, but he was in the Australian commando, so he was, I was taught by a commando. 
I know that. Guy. How cool is that? Yeah. Anyway, we were always taught to to keep grounded. You know, there's a way that you stand like this, and he'd come and try and push us. He'd be, there'd be these little thirteen-year-old kids flying across the room because <laughs> this big guy would be trying to push us over. <laughs> And that was the test, you know, one of the tests to be trying to push you over. And I think, you know, that's a bit rough. Kids would go flying. Luckily, there were mats on, you know, padded. But, but that was what you had to learn was how to develop a center of gravity, a low center of gravity and a footing, a stance that made you very stable. So you're less likely to be pushed over. And so I think that's really what we're talking about here is how do you develop that? How do you develop that degree of groundedness uh, that you're less likely to be thrown? That's essentially the, the answer to the question, how do we survive in a time of chaos? Is you've got to learn that, but you have to learn. It's not the, men, it's not the physical skills. It's the mental equivalent of that stance. What is the stance? And I think the answer is the capacity to access your inner strength at will, your inner stability at will. How quickly, in a, let's say a conflict situation, how quickly are you able to return to, to disengage from the emotional response and to return to a state of calm, the observer? Have you tested that? Have you found lately that you're able to do that better than you could before? Yes. It's able to return? Absolutely not perfect, but mm. there's definite improvement. Mm. Yeah, you're getting there. And that's through the practices. Yeah. I think for me, quick, if something like that happens, I still experience the intensity of it, but so quick to recover. Like, you can recover very fast. Mm. It doesn't. So that's the key, that's the measure of your progress is how quickly do you get sucked into an emotional reaction? That's the first test. If you're able to be less reactive and be more detached, say it's a stressful situation and you can just think, you can see what's going to happen and you pull back and you say no. I can see what's going on here. There's an ego play at work. I'm getting, I can feel that I could get drawn into that, but I've got enough self-awareness and presence of mind and awareness that I cannot do that. That's the first one. The second, and if you can do that, that's great. The second one is, as you say, it's, you're better than you were before, but occasionally you still get pulled in. Mm. So then the second part of that analysis is, how soon can I recover? So you beat up on yourself and you go, damn, I fell for it again. You know, and you'll do that natural period, understandably, that you'll be a little bit disappointed with yourself that you um, got drawn in. But you at least have the presence and the self-awareness to go, okay, I'm not going to dwell on this now, I'm going to return to the source. So you dig yourself out of the hole is what you need to do. And so the, the second part of that then is how long does that take? How long are you going to remain angry for? 
How long are you going to remain hurt for? Someone attacks you or hurts you in some way. How long are you going to carry that load before you decide that there's another state that's more preferable that you could have right now if you were so minded? Can you do that? You still get angry with yourself though when you get caught in. You do, but then even being angry with yourself is not it. No, I guess not. Because you've got you the insight to see that you've got yeah. sucked in. Yeah, so then... Being aware that you're angry. Being aware that you're angry and then being aware of the awareness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then being angry at your We had a great <laughs> session last week. So it was this thing we were saying, these days I'm becoming more aware that I'm, get, that I, that my, I'm getting angry, say, or I'm getting drawn in. I can be aware that I'm being drawn in. Being aware that I'm anxious. That's, and I said, that's great, but there's one step beyond that. And that is, what is the awareness that is aware that you're more aware of the situation? Mm. So it's a meta-awareness. Yeah. It's the awareness of the awareness. Who, who knows that you've dreamt? Who knows that you've... What is it? Exactly. What is it that watches? What is it that observes? What is it that now is conscious of the fact that you are listening? You see what I'm saying? It's a very very subtle, (laughs) subtle state. That's where you need to be able to return to at will. So if I say right now, even without closing your eyes, you're aware of what's going on in the room. What is it that is aware? Can you return? Can you go into that or into the pure awareness? So you're just in awareness, as if this is just a, a charade, that you're just watching this as a play and there's this other thing that is just awareness. I think my, my understanding of what's going on around me now is heightened mm-hmm. to the degree that um, in the past, and not far distant past, I would be very introspective when things started going awry. Mm-hmm. And I'm able now to turn that around and look at what's happening around me in the context of what's happening to the people around me. Mm-hmm. Rather than you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's helpful for mm-hmm. me personally. It's very helpful mm. because I'm not, I'm not um, whipping myself, flagellating myself and saying, look, you stupid thing, you've you've done it again, mm. you've let it affect you again, mm-hmm. I'm saying, well, what is it that I could have done mm-hmm. and what are these poor people going through? So you've and got more objectivity. Mm. I think the objectivity, so that's, a good, that's, that's a good description of what I mm. think I have. Instead mm. of taking on somebody else's emotional state, mm. you stay in your own state while observing theirs and doing what you can being stable in your own emotional state. Yes, and allowing my state to change from self-flagellation to empathy. Mm. Yeah, that's that's good. So now what really is happening there, I think, is that ego is getting less involved. Because ego, remember, is the cause of our entanglement in every problem. Disentanglement, or we call in um, Sanskrit viragya, 
is the detachment. It's the ability to step out of the situation and to look at it from the viewpoint of pure awareness. Ultimately, you want to, you'll go to the first level, but last week's talk was called Two Steps to Freedom. I think we called it in the end. Two Steps to Liberation. Step one is to step outside of the entanglement itself and just observe what's going on. Step two is to move to this question of what is it that observes? See, there's an even higher. So imagine that a great example I like is um, the bird's eye view situation. You can either be down on the ground in the skirmish, in the chaos that we've been talking about, or you can step out and you can rise up, take a pick a number, 300 feet, 500 feet, you know, 100 meters, 200 meters above it, and you watch that from there. And you get a sense of perspective then. You can see all the different dynamics at play, including you down there. The ego that is you is part of that dynamic. But now there is another aspect of you that is seeing that within context. But then there's a higher perspective, and this is where we really want to get to, is it the 10,000 foot view, where you see where you begin to identify more. You see, all of this is occurring within beingness. All of this is occurring within this play of consciousness down here. When you move into consciousness itself, all of these things lose their significance. So we're moving, flipping out of the relative into the absolute. That's the flip that you do. See, right now there's let's say at least I, I wrote something this week about 36 different dimensions which I'll talk about in a sec because it's fun but let's just say for the moment there's another dimension of you which is the pure still perfect all-knowing completely uh, unassailable you know invincible there's an aspect of you already is there. But also there's this mind-body thing, another aspect. This is down on the relative plane in the realm of duality, good, bad, hot, cold, happy, sad. You know what I mean by that, the relative area? That's where all the conflicts occurring down here on the, at the relative level. But at the absolute level, there's no problem not a problem there's no actual you actually not even you ego is not there it's just in the deepest meditative state when you touch that you know that it, what it is so that now which one is you you flip you are you actually alternating between the two states but actually you can be in both states at once which is where when you learn to integrate so initially it's a binary thing I'm here and then I'm in the meditative state feels great I come out for an hour later everything's rosy and then I get drawn back into the duality and then I meditate again the next day that's my little break everything's restored and then I'm back in again 
right? So day after day, this is the routine. Into the absolute, back into the relative. That's in the first stages. In the second stage, what happens? The absolute starts to percolate down through into the relative. So now I'm in both states at once. The deep sense of peace, the sense of um, stability, all these things that we're talking about is simultaneously there, right there in the background. And I can at will move from one to the other, one to the other. That's where you're starting to get to when you're talking about things aren't affecting you much anymore. It's because that state is now very present because you've made the investment in the practice where you've cultivated the capacity to access it. You didn't create that state. You have to understand the state's already fully there. So nothing to actually create. It's there. But you're learning to beat the pathway back into it so you can get there quickly. That's the second phase. And the third phase is where you become so established in that state that this all just starts to take on a different feel. Like it's hardly even real. It's just sort of something that is happening. You know, when Jensen talks about this idea, his, his experience is that my friend Jensen had a huge awakening. And he's in a state now where it's just... He just lives down the road. Yeah, he's just in a state where it's just state, like... We say, he's fully, we say he's fully cooked. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you have glimpses of this, and increasingly that's the thing, is that you de-identify with this, and it's just this thing that you're carrying around. But it's this other state that really starts to feel like that's who you are. Not just as an intellectual concept, but as an absolute rea bedrock reality. That's the third state. So it, as we live through this time of conflict and of aggression and untruth and all the things that we talked about, it's the capacity to re-engineer our involvement by you know, you could even say raising your vibration, just getting into a, into a lived state of such connectedness with the higher principle of you that this other stuff all just starts to take on less significance. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not going to be impacted at the relative level, because like we said, there's no immunity against the physical effects of living in a physical world. The fact that we're here means that we've already signed on to whatever's going to happen. Right? That's part of the, the deal, being an embodiment. Is that you're, you're basically saying, I'm up for whatever happens, good or bad, because I'm going to learn from it. So you can't then turn around and say that I don't want anything bad to happen to me because you can't, that promise can't be given. So, so therefore what I'm saying is the very fact that we're here in an embodiment means that shit is going to happen at some point, whether we like it or not. That's not the debate. The debate is not around whether or not shit's going to happen. The debate is 
how are you going to handle it? That's the bit you have control over. You don't have control over this other thing. You might be lucky and get through life and nothing bad happens to you. Good on you if you can. But yet, you know, that's, that's pretty much roulette. But what you can control is how you respond. How you view it. How much of it you take on. How much you allow the ego to engage and to buy into this, to the play. That's the bit you've got. Now, the great news, and th at this point you should be starting to feel encouraged and optimistic and empowered when I tell you that that part is eminently capable of being cultivated, eminently able to be built upon, to be strengthened day by day, hour by hour, by bringing the awareness back into the present awareness of being, to go deep into the meditative states, to change the neurology, to progressively see the change in you. And in others around you. And, and in others around you and also in others' reaction to you. This is another sign how people are responding to you now. The capacity to attract more, attract more positive things into your life. And not to attract so much negativity. So here's a cool thing. When you start to live more with awareness, like you're starting to go, wait a minute, I'm starting to see cracks in this model. I'm starting to see through the curtain. I'm starting to see patterns of behavior that have been repeating in my life. You know about all that? That you keep attracting the same situations to you until you learn. And you might change the, the relationship. You might change the partner but then you will have another partner that ends up having the similar characteristics to the other one, previous one. And what you realize, someone once put it like this, that it's the same relationship. The faces are changing, but it's the same relate. Until you sort that out, it's never going to change. So what I'm saying is that that aspect of you can definitely be cultivated, developed self-development when you when you do that work that's that's the most important work you should be doing that's the real work of being a human this is the know thyself is what we're talking that's the real reason that you're here if you want to know your life's purpose it's to know that and then the rest is ancillary, you know. Do what you want to do. Money, no money. Good relationship, bad relationship. Health, ill health. Are we all the same? At the level of absolute, we are the same. It's at the level of this, um, the relative level, that all the differences start to play out. They start to emerge, but yeah, at, at our, at the level of our essence, we are one. But even on this level, we, the difference is just our different levels of progress, sort of through that. No, that that can be karmic as well. So, where you are on this level, you come into this life, 
you might be born into a very wealthy... Look at the kids. I was with the guys that started Atlassian this week in their offices. So there's two young Aussie software programmers that are now billionaires. No, they don't wear suits. And I'm thinking, you know, they've just bought houses next to each other in Kiribati, I think, $100 million houses next door to each other. And their kids are being born into this house. And imagine the karma of a child being born into that. Their existence from the birth is that there's, they're never going to have to worry about money. So yeah, at that level we're different. You know, we, we're born into different situations. That's always a result, they say, of past actions, if you believe in karma. And similarly, we have different bodies, we have different cultures, we have different belief systems, we have different parents, we have different education. All that is, that is the variability of life. So at that level, no, we're not the same. At the relative level, we're all different. The relative level is the realm of difference. Right? But it's this other level, and that's the play, the unfolding mosaic in which we are testing ourselves being tested but it's this other level of pure being that we're, there's no separation it's the piece of the jigsaw puzzle the last bit that we all want yeah, well, I mean, that's the last bit we actually all have oh, that's right. remember we already we've so already close. got it it's so close, it's as close as your breath hmm. you can touch it it's, it's there. It's your breath. The thing is, well, the problem is only that we keep forgetting who we, we are. We think it's far away or it's a journey or it's a path and once yeah. we do some stuff, then you'll get it at the end. But it's, We've already got it's it. right already got now it. in your breath. Remember who you are. Yeah. That's the message. Yeah. That really should be the, the um, culmination of this session is really one simple, me simple message. Remember who you are. Is it, is it the chaos? I don't know whether I'm not getting it or whether my head's taking me in a totally different direction. Mm -hmm. But for me, for this whole session, I've been visualising myself sitting, I guess, on the floor with my legs crossed mm -hmm. with mirrors mm -hmm. surrounding me. Mm -hmm. and not having the chaos impact on me mm -hmm. but me using the chaos to or manipulating the chaos to create all the perceptions of me of what I think I should be of what I want to be of, of what I think people want me to be mm -hmm. and not actually knowing and, and being too scared to release that chaos or, or put organisation to that chaos or, or lower those walls to figure out the real me mm -hmm. because I'm actually not real sure I'll actually like the real me. Ah, well, so that, that, that for me you don't sense. like the real me means that um, we're not talking about the same me. Right, the, if, if you knew the real you, there's nothing, there's nothing not to like. I mean, the, the purest essence of you as perfection, as just pure awareness, consciousness, that's the real you. There is no other you. 
there's any other version of you is still ego is still maybe a nicer version of you or maybe you're worried that there's a uh, subconscious unconscious version of you that you've been suppressing because you're scared of what that might be maybe it's carrying all past stuff that uh, is driving a lot of your beliefs and your behaviors and your fears and you're scared to encounter that but that's not you either that's still an artifact that's an artifact right this is a subtle point but it's a very good point to raise is that what about accepting the chaos rather than trying to control it rather than trying You're talking to internal chaos here? any form of chaos no. what if you just accepted the chaos let the chaos be See? Don't fight the chaos. Don't try and organize the chaos. Because you can't organize chaos. You can organize some aspects. Like I said, trying to control some aspects. But this is whack-a-mole. You know that game whack-a-mole? Mm -hmm. You whack one down and another one pops up. Never indulged in that. Okay, so it was a game. <laughs> it was actually a board game, I think. <laughs> where you would... There were all these little, it's a kid's game, and there's all these little moles that would pop up through little burrows. Oh, okay. And you'd hit them with a hammer and another one would pop up. So it literally means whack-a-mole. Yeah, right. whack-a-mole was the game. But it's a term we use in, um, uh, certainly in the internet business, in, in corporate parlance, whack-a-mole is, um, is engaging in an enterprise where you're putting out bushfires, but everyone you put out, another one starts. That's the concept. So to the extent that you're seeking to organize chaos, you're really playing whack-a-mole. You're not going to know where the next one's going to pop its head up. And when it does, all you're doing is reacting, waking it back down in the hole. So it'd be a bit like a non-acceptance. Yeah, whereas if you just let... I think let that's the biggest point, most important point, acceptance. Yeah. That's what's come through loud yeah. and clear with yeah. your answer to this yeah. um, this description of the need to sort stuff out around you, you know, uh, you've got, you're, you're in a situation of chaos and you want to be calm enough to say, okay, now this, I can sort this. But actually we don't need to sort it, mm. we? we just need to... Like, you, you just deal with it on, as an ongoing basis, but if you have that sense of self, well, like they say, it's just another one pops up here, mm. do that and there'll always be something else, but it doesn't mean you're actually out of control. No, you have to accept that the things, that things are going to keep going on around you and be confident and happy enough and secure enough to know that you can cope with it, that you can, you, you already know how to cope with mm. it. So the acceptance is the key yeah, I think so. to dealing with the chaos, is to say, what if a whack on, if a mole appeared and you decided not to whack it down? What time. if you hugged it instead? Yeah, or what if you just accepted Ew. it? <laughs> you know, Eckhart Tolle, so someone goes, he goes, well, why can't you just accept that? Just surrender to it. Just accept that someone's going to be nasty to you. But doesn't and then they you say, allow them to hurt you. No, but then, so then, so then they go, but I can't accept the fact that they're going to talk to me like that. 
that's your ego. Isn't that though, ego? Isn't it? Yeah, so ego is kind of like that. Ego. And so then he says, so then, important. exactly, so then he says, and this is taking it up to another level, right? He goes, well then, accept the fact that you can't accept. Mm. That's a good one. Mm. Yeah. How mm. powerful is that? Accept the fact that you can't accept. And move on. So this is the this is the answer to your question. Accept the fact that there may be a version of you that emerges that you don't like. Be at peace with that possibility as well. And what will happen is you'll levitate up to 10,000 feet. Because in the acceptance is where your liberation is. It's not in the control or the organisation. That's the fallacy. So in other words, you're just letting, letting go. You're just letting things be. Let things be. I don't say, look, you know, if a truck's in, coming down the road and there's a child standing in front of you and you could pull them out on, into safety, then obviously you, do, you don't just accept the fact they're going to get killed and not do anything. <laughs> You've got to use a bit of common sense there, right? But I'm saying in terms of the... Hmm? I'm glad you brought that. Yeah, up. well, I mean, you know, it's not, we're not advocating... But I think we're talking internal stuff. Yeah, we're internal. not advocating for in, inaction where a simple action would have a positive effect. Mm. But I'm saying in, specifically in terms of the factors that you cannot control, mm. right? That's the key point. It's not the stuff you can easily control. Of course, you control it. Mm. Why not? You'd be mm. stupid to just, you know, have a health issue and not go to the doctor. Mm. and say, oh, I'm going to accept the fact that I could be... I mean, if you're that great a yogi that you can do that and you know that you're going to be able to pull it off, great. You know, go ahead and die from an, uh, you know, a, an avoidable condition. If that's your state, if you're that evolved, like, you know, Zipruana used to sit on a, on a pile of rubbish, didn't he? Was that Zipruana? One of them. Live, like, they'd live these crazy lives where they'd just be... Nothing would matter. But that's a very rare condition, I think, in the world that we're living in. Some action is necessary in, in the realm of existence. You've got to feed and clothe and shelter yourself. So you do those things. But what I'm really saying is in terms of the realm of chaos of the macro forces that are literally out of our control, don't stress it. It's, you can't change it anyway. I think... Doing the practices, so you know, doing the practices change your perception of everything. Hmm. It just, it changes you. It changes everything. Napoleon used to say that I, he said, I get a lot of correspondence. People write to me all the time about issues in their life, and he goes, I generally take twelve months to reply to any request, such request. He says, I usually find that in the course of time, problems resolve themselves. If something's still a problem after 12 months, then I'll address it. So he's taking a macro view, now obviously pragmatic as well for his position. But what the point he's making is that you don't necessarily have to rush in. Sometimes the situations, the best course of action, according to Sun Tzu, sometimes the best course of action is to wait. But you need the capacity of acceptance, of wisdom to know when to move and when not to move. This is wisdom, right? It's not knowledge. It's not data points. It's wisdom. Wisdom comes from the capacity to observe impartially, objectively, and then to understand when to take action and when not to. But acceptance is also part of that process.
the wisdom, you know, they say, give me the strength to change the things that I need to change and to accept the things that I can't. That's the key. So how do we get accept? Now, acceptance takes courage. This is another whole talk, so we won't do it now. But just to say, you go, well, it's all very well for you to say, just accept. But, you know, then they say, I can't accept. And then he says, well, accept the fact that you can't accept. Right? But we've got to have the foundation. These are just words. If you don't know how to put this into practice, then you walk away with a bunch of theory. And then first time a conflict arises, you lose it. So the key is not what I'm saying, but what you're doing. And that comes from what we're about to do, and we're going to go meditate, where you start to really build, invest in, cultivate, nurture, feed the inner state, return to the inner state. And then the rest is just, just going to flow. It'll flow. Well using your analogy of being in the IT business, the best thing I ever read was, and the best thing I say to particularly men, is meditation changes your brain. It's like a, a reset. Mm. Like the computer needs a boot, a reboot and a reset. That's it. Control, Go. alt, delete. <laughs> yes. And then after a while it just gets better. Mm. So does the brain injury. The brain injury does that too. Yeah. That's yeah. what happened to me. Yeah. So, oh. Okay. That was a forced reset. Forced reset. (laughs) See, the thing is... That's an incredible story. That's a great story. (laughs) The thing is, if you don't take proactive steps on your own course of evolution, don't worry, because life's going to make it happen for you anyway. Mm. Mm. Right? But the thing is, if you've gone into that accident with the awareness that you have now... There's some possibility that maybe some of the, I don't know, I don't want to speculate here, but it may have been a different outcome. Out, it might have been a quicker recovery. I don't know. It might have been different. But maybe that was the way she's... But that's the way, that was your path. And it's mm. completely legitimate. And look at you now. It worked. So, like I say, don't worry about it because it's about just being present. Mm. But I do like that reset concept. Reset. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to keep that in mind for the practices. Mm. Make sure it's a I'm hard thing to explain to people. Yeah. You know, well, what is meditation to for you? Mm. Yeah, it just yeah, yeah. resets my brain. It resets my brain. Mm. Mm. I was scrambled. You know, and it's yeah. really particularly beneficial for the people that have difficulty detaching. Yes. Yeah. I keep coming back to this concept of viragya, detachment. V-A-I-R... A-G-Y-A, Veragya, detachment. Doesn't make you, doesn't mean you become a cold fish and you cease to empathize, but it does give you the ability to observe chaos without being drawn in, to remain in your stillness, and then, if necessary, to take the appropriate action or if appropriate action is not available to you, to give you the strength of acceptance and the courage to accept. 
that's essentially the, the strategy. Okay, great session. So what we'll do is we will meditate now. And then we can uh, experience what we've been talking about here.